Hello everyone and welcome once again to 101 George Street, the podcast for Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy. At the time of recording this, the COVID pandemic has entered into its second year, with the UK slowly but surely emerging from a second national lockdown. The pandemic has affected all facets of everyday life and has severely impacted not only the creative industries but other sectors as well. For this episode, I've invited actor and storyteller Fred Hopkins onto the show to talk about how he has adapted to this new environment. Fred is a physical theatre actor and storyteller based in the north of England, who has worked extensively across the UK, with his main practice focusing on the Scottish borders and the Central Belt. Before the pandemic, he ran a business teaching his storytelling techniques to the corporate world. Fred, what's your favourite children's story and why? I'm not really sure it is a children's story, but one of my favourites growing up, um, it's from the, the, unsurprisingly for me, the King Arthur legends. So it's uh, Gawain and the Green Knight. So as I got older, I realised there's more and more different versions of the Arthur stories. Um, and Gawain and the Green Knight is one of the oldest ones. So traditionally, it's always been in the legend. And depending on who you talk to, it dates right the way back to when it was uh, a verbal spoken legend as opposed to a recorded one. I don't like Lancelot. He was an invention by um, a French author who wanted to spice it up with a bit of uh, a bit of a romance tale that wasn't actually in there. So I don't really like any of his stuff and never did as a kid. But Gawain, I really like. And I really like him because from a child's point of view, he's a really easy to understand character. He's big, he's strong, he does what he thinks is the right thing and he'll have a go at anyone. So in the story, obviously, the Arthur and his knights are having a feast. They're celebrating, doing whatever it was they'd done uh, for the rest of the year. And it's at the end of the year. And the Green Knight comes in and he challenges them. And he basically says, yeah, you can take a swing at me. Do what you want. But I'm going to hit you back and it will be within a year. Um, and the, the long story, of long and short of it is, uh, Gawain lops his head off. And everyone's like, oh, well, you're not going to get hit back, are you? And then the Green Knight laughs, picks up his head and says, all right, you've got a year and then I'm going to come back and do you one. Um, and it's blow for blow. So there's this sudden horror because um, lopping your head off is normally quite a final thing. Mm. And Gawain is now confronted with the fact that, yeah, you're big, yeah, you're strong, you, you did what you thought was the right thing, but actually it's not because being big and strong isn't enough in this. And over the course of the year, he has to try and come to terms with this and and do various different things. And if, depending on what version of the legend you look at, he goes on little quests to try and find the green man and make it right. And then in others, he he just sort of sinks into a bit of a morass where he goes, oh, well, that's it. I suppose I'll have to find something to do. Um, I'm not going to give the ending away. If you want to read it, do so. I would thoroughly recommend people do. Um, but it's, for me, it's one that sticks out in my head as being a kid, kind of realising that, yeah, being big and strong is great, but it's not necessarily the be all and the end all. Um, and I think that was where, for me, as a, as a young reader, I clocked into the idea that a lot of the stories and the storybooks I was reading might actually have lessons for me in the real world. Absolutely. The story of Gwen and the Green Knight is interesting because I'm I'm a big fan of Robert Holstock's novels and yeah. the Thigo world and novels that are about exploring the mythological past of Britain. And though Robert Holstock is very much not a children's author, he used to focus uh, a lot on the story of Gwen and the Green Knight because there's a lot of symbolism as well as teaching an important lesson to people. There's a lot of symbolism with the Green Knight and the idea of renewal and the idea of, of fighting a battle 
that you you can't win and trying to stop the changing of the seasons because obviously the green knight a lot of people think that um that was the that was nature that yep. was that was the passing of time there's something that there's some battles you can't win which in itself is a valuable lesson this is the lovely thing with it because it's such an ancient legend and because you know it, it kind of the simplicity of the tale has allowed it to be told and retold and reinterpreted there's so many different layers that you can kind of put into it so the the version that i first read um arthur and his knights were very heavily um christian orientated so they were an order of christian knights as it were and there is this underlying subtext that the green man represents paganism or pagan beliefs and then you've got this kind of clash of ideologies going on there in a not overly aggressive or proselytist way and it's there's this kind of thing about you, you there are some things that regardless of what your ideology are you just need to kind of make peace with and that you've got to kind of learn to live alongside of which was really really mind-blowing for me when I first started seeing that in there um so yeah it's for me it's it's one of the the kind of seminal bits of of literature I read as a kid that really I mean it opened doors for me in terms of understanding the way that um storytelling impacts well to to use current terminology that i throw around a lot a lot knowledge transfer um it was the king arthur legends that led me to read various different other works of fancy authors and you know the list is as long as my arm of the uh, the influential ones but you know let's let's keep it relatively easy to go for the hobbit mm. In theory, it's just a simple little tale, or relatively simple tale, of made-up characters doing amazing things. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a little tale about a little man. Yeah, exactly. But it's the everyman story, and it's the everyman story transported into a fantastical realm in which someone who has relatively low qualifications for going out and literally dragon-slaying goes out and assists in the slaying of the dragon and learns more about himself and is pushed way beyond his comfort zones and discovers... Uh, wells of courage in the face of adversity and the, the meaning of friendship and the bonds of loyalty and what that can do for you and those are just the surface elements that I can think of off the top of my head because it's been a couple of years since I last read it and then that being on that little journey I have to say that um, the, the works of fiction I've read have influenced me who I am my own personality and uh, kind of perceptions of right and wrong more than any autobiography that I've read uh, in the real world. So that's obviously that's quite a personal journey that I've been on. I'm also picking up this theme with you, Fred, that you are quite interested in archetypical stories, universal stories, the idea of the quest and the idea of a battle between ideologies or cultures the idea that someone starts in one position or in one state and then through a journey they get to another position or another state which is a very primeval form of storytelling and it seems to me that the kind of stories that you're interested in and particularly when you were younger it wasn't so much the like the modern stories that you, you can kind of read now but it was more stories that kind of connected with some sort of sense of the past yes so for me the sense of the past because i'm also a huge science fiction fan as well um and hard science fiction so stuff that's based in what we understand to be theoretically physical uh, or 
theoretically achievable physics. But the stories that, that, that key me in the most are the ones that ignore the technology at play. And it, regardless of whether they're set in a uh, quasi-medievalistic fantasy realm or a hyper-futuristic, heavily technologically dependent realm, the ones that really hook me in, regardless of what genre I'm reading, are the ones in which it's an individual on a journey of change where they learn more about themselves and through adversity overcome either personal demons or, depending on what author you're reading, could be literal demons. Um, and I, I think a lot of authors tend to, just as you know, you know, ancient shamans might have couched metaphors for life into fantastical tales, mm. modern authors do exactly the same. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, though, For me, the, the kind of understanding of who we are uh, as people is a question that every generation has to find for itself. Um, so, it, it, you know, the, Anthony Nato's theory that there are no more masterpieces and we should throw away Shakespeare and, and let every generation re rediscover itself. It's an extreme version of this, but ultimately no one is going to... Um, instantly have all the knowledge of their ancestors and, and an intuitive understanding of their, their place in the world, which is what a lot of these stories are looking at. It's how do you deal with your place in the world? How do you deal with context and circumstances that are way beyond your control? And what influence can you exert over them through your actions? And, you know, a lot of the big stories, the, the, the kind of what I would think of as the your traditional epic quest stories of the prophesied individual who goes off and bumps off the Dark Lord or does whatever, mm. which is it is a bit of a trope, but it's it's one that people kind of respond to because it's that hero quest type story. They look at this notion of ordinary individuals who through the the kind of the hero's journey of meeting the mentor or being given the magic artifact or whatever the, the special knowledge is go out and they change the world and couched within that is a very real lesson of taking experience from your own life and forging it into something that you can use to influence things or protect yourself from future danger or so on, so on, so on. I think you're touching on something really interesting there. There is a theory when it comes to speculative fiction and fantasy fiction that as well as dealing with things like the journey and things like discovery, it also examines the conflict between orthodoxy and revolution in that a lot of the best speculative fiction, the best sci-fi, hard sci-fi, the best fantasy, examines this idea of the orthodoxy, the status quo, keeping things the same and then something coming along and shattering that and changing that. Now that could be the orthodoxy within an individual, a character, and they yep. need to do something. They need to go on a journey to suddenly discover new powers or, or, or a new skill or a new perception of reality. If you're looking at speculative fiction, but there's this kind of reoccurring theme or so the theory goes that what you're actually looking at is orthodoxy that is then being challenged. And it's a theme that is repeated over and over again throughout literature. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm honest with you, if I was ever to, to undertake a, a PhD in, in creative writing, my thesis would be around the interaction of the status quo and villainy. Mm. Um, there's very, very few novels I'm aware of, or, or certainly that I've read, in which you don't have an antagonist. And if you think to uh, even, even real-world examples... But if we look at uh, uh, fantasy, for example, let's take Lord of the Rings. We've already sort of halfway mentioned it. 
there's a there's a very nice sort of bucolic status quo within the Shire. Uh, you've got a very happy people. They don't really care about what goes on beyond their borders because it doesn't affect them. They have little lives. They they go to property auctions. They have family squabbles. They like mm. food. It's a lovely existence, and that's then threatened. And it's threatened because an individual, in this case, um, Tolkien's Dark Lord Sauron, decides he he wants to rule the world and has always wanted to rule the world and is now flexing some muscle to do so. So what the Dark Lord or the villain in this story is doing is he's attempting to change the status quo. Mm. If you were to look at any story with, with a protagonist-antagonist kind of relationship, whether they meet each other or not, what you'll find is... The protagonist is a champion for the status quo, keeping things as they were, or at the very least, making sure that any changes are slow, manageable, predictable, and forecast. Whereas a villain is more often not someone who looks at the world and decides, actually, I don't like the way things are. I feel that the world would be better if everyone bowed down to me and paid me taxes, or I would feel better if the world didn't have that particularly fantastical city over there because there's something in it that I don't like. So I'm going to go out and change it. And by attempting to change the status quo and running into that resistance from the heroes of the norm, the villain then becomes the villain. And I think it would be a really interesting thing, and I've not seen many writers do it. Ironically, I've seen computer games that do this, taking a story from the point of view of a villain who could be a completely normal person until they make the decision to act on the desire to change the world around them. So I think heroes, by definition, in most fantasy and science fiction, are reactionary. Because I think a proactive hero who sees something wrong with the world and goes out to change it automatically becomes a villain. That is really interesting. It's a completely, certainly for me, a new way of looking at things. And I think um, if you ever do do that PhD, <laughs> then um, I'll be happy to read the uh, your your thesis. Absolutely. I might write one anyway, just for the fun of it. Yeah, why not? Why not? You need more paperwork <laughs> in your life. Yeah, exactly. Fred, I know you are a quite an experienced performer and you've worked across the UK. Yeah, so um, I, I, I'm an actor. Um, I, I graduated back in the mess of time in 2008 into my first once-in-a-lifetime recession. Um, the, the What that did is it forced me to innovate in a way that I wouldn't have if the 0708 crash didn't happen and hadn't taken away a bunch of contracts that I'd managed to get. So I went from having kind of like year-round work lined up. So there was a bit of TIE with Cragrats. So for your older listeners who have engaged with them, you'll know exactly who I mean. There was a little bit of rep work um, up at, uh, when was it? That was in Bridlington for the summer. Um, that went down the pan to uh, from a fully equity-paid contract down to a profit share because their funding disappeared. And then there was a little bit of outreach work in uh, Wakefield Prison that also disappeared because they lost their funding to do any kind of artistic outreach for about four years. So I went from overnight from having year-round work lined up to absolutely nothing. And it forced me into a position where I had to innovate. So as an actor, I've always had to think outside the box from day one of my career, which is not to say that actors don't, but it forced me to look at non-traditional routes of getting my art used on a daily basis. Um, now, that's not to say that I didn't take a series of day jobs and that I didn't, you know, leave the sector behind for a, in, in a way because I did. Um, so post-graduation, sort of staring at the wreckage of my career, working as a, as a barman because, you know, you've got to eat. I was wondering what the hell I do with myself. And the thought occurred that, you know, as an actor, you, you, you're trained in communication. Um, it's I, I like to think that I've got a, a layman's degree in um 
psychology because it's an actor you taught to look at the context around which people speak um you're supposed to look at the physicality with which people walk around a stage or walk in life and then draw conclusions based off of that so you 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 know the training that i had was almost training in cold reading um and understanding the baseline psychology that that drives the context around which people then perform their interactions um so i took it i was looking at that and i was taking stock um and i was pulling my shinty sixth pint of guinness of the day other stouts are available um and i kind of realized that actually there's the there's money to be made in teaching other people how to communicate um because yeah and i was proved right so one of the things that one of the first things i did was turn around to my current employees and say well look do your management did need in other departments um a bit of upskilling on how to i'm not doing a very good job of it now but how to speak with confidence so i was looking at my uh, my my kind of skill set and i i realized that there was very much money to be made in pitching art skills to smes and businesses um, so I looked at my, my personal networks, um, and, you know, I, I did the thing that everyone always tells you to do as a, as an arts professional, which is ask the people, you know, go to your networks. Um, and that landed me a series of small contracts in the, around your Scotland. Um, so as well as kind of starting to see the value in my skill set, I also learned the importance of planning your, uh, planning your travel routes. Um, so just to confirm that, uh, cause I think, um, zoom did, was being a bit naughty then, yeah. um, that's work around Yorkshire and the central belt of Scotland. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Some stuff in around Northumbria as well. Mm. Um, um, I was dealing with SMEs. Uh, so generally speaking, I was dealing with the, the sales divisions of manufacturing companies for some reason. So, uh, quite a lot of light to heavy industry, um, making parts for other things. And it was, it was essentially a, a sales speaking course that I was running. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, I realized that, that, that what I'd developed was kind of a one-shot deal because if you got it, you didn't need me to come back. If you didn't get it, you didn't want me to come back. Those who needed it couldn't always pay for it. And those who could pay for it probably didn't want it from me. So I had to go through a number of different iterations of this, um, of, of, of my pitch, working out a new a new way of selling it and drawing on my acting training for that was absolutely invaluable because what I discovered was that when you're selling, you're actually telling a story. And this this is something that, that has bled into my, my corporate career and has fed back into my artistic career, this knowledge that um, actually when you're selling to people, you're telling them a story and the story that you're telling them is why they've got a problem with X. You take them from being unknowingly ignorant. People don't know there's a problem. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're in any kind of uh, sales job, you're, you're disturbing people's zen. You're contacting them normally out of the blue or off the back of some horrid networking meeting in a, in a hotel lounge somewhere. Although these days would give my right arm to be in a hotel lounge somewhere. Um, off a, a slightly grubby business card saying, yeah, we met at that thing. Um, I want to talk to you about this thing that, that might be a problem for you. You know, do you know how to, to break into new meetings? Do you know how to, to, to read an audience for buying signals? I can teach you these things. And what you're doing is you're basically saying, the way you're doing things right now is good, but there's a problem with it. I've got the solution to that problem. And that solution is going to cost you about 300 quid for the day. You're going to get me. I'm going to run through this with you. I'm going to teach you how to stand with confidence. I'm going to teach you how to speak with confidence. I'm going to teach you how to appear like you know what you're doing, even as the wheels fly off around you. And what I was actually doing was letting them into my mental state as I was doing this, because I, frankly, I made quite a lot of it up on the fly. 
So what I did is I, I looked at ways of, of improving my business practice. And at the time, things like video conferencing, they were just not suitable. Um, I would have loved to be able to do these kind of sessions from the comfort of my own, well, maybe not my living room because it was always a wreck, but certainly a, a pre-prepared location that would mean that I didn't have to travel for a couple of days to get up to mm. Scotland to, to travel through from Falkirk to, to in one memorable instance, Perth and Dundee. But at the time, that wasn't in it. That wasn't a possibility. So um, I trusted my, my uh, slightly clapped out Jag bombed up and down the M1 and the A1 and the various different highlands and lowlands and uh, spoke to a lot of people about how they can use storytelling as a sales technique for themselves. And the first example I always gave them was the call where I'd spoken to them and said, this is a problem and I can help you fix it because that was their first knowing interaction with storytelling as a sales mechanism. Potentially, some of them were already kind of doing it anyway, and it was just a case of making them consciously aware of what they were doing. And those were joyous sessions. And then there were the horrible sessions because you can't always teach everyone everything. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I, I'd pick the wrong person to be dealing with and it didn't go particularly well. Um, and I, you know, uh, being a, a foolishly honest individual would offer them uh, either a 50% refund or a discount. Oddly enough, no one took me up on the discount for another session. So what happened from there is I got more and more into the world of sales and the corporate world. And so I ended up taking a, a full-time uh, job as a telesales manager in a call center. And what that did is it sharpened my ability to, to teach and to train, but also it gave me a new appreciation for technology and the way that people interact with it. And ideas started to form of how it was that I could start using technology to convey my art. And I started looking you know, after the thick end of a decade at being a, an actor again, but in a very, very different way, one that wouldn't rely on external parties having funding that might or might not come through, that didn't need the dreaded profit share where the profit might just be a banana and a pint after the, after the performance, um, and put me very much in control of what I did when I did it. So voiceover was a natural one. And voiceover, is a, for me, it's a bit of a boom industry at the minute because you can do it from home. The technology to do it is dirt cheap. Um, over the years, I've learned the skills required to do my own editing, so I don't necessarily need to have someone else edit a showreel for me now these days. I can do it myself, and I'm not the only one doing these things. And then from there, I started thinking, well, if I can if I can edit a showreel together uh, or a voice reel, can I edit together a, a radio play? To which the answer is yes. And it started... Uh, lockdown, in a way, was actually a bit of a mercy because it... it it forced a level, again, like the last once-in-a-lifetime recession, it forced a level of innovation around how I and my, my fellow creatives create what we do. So we, we started talking on Zoom. Other platforms are available. And we discovered that um, actually other platforms were better for us, and we experimented with a few of them. We found one where we could um, quite happily steal the video and download it and take the audio and rip it. And then we came up with the idea of, well, actually, if we can meet digitally, if we can record it whilst we're meeting, what's to stop us from creating something whilst in lockdown? And we did. And it was delightful because it was the first time that geography hadn't been an issue in getting all of the cast members together to produce something. The actual actor producing it for us, it was, you know, it was second nature. The, the nature of our training was around devising storytelling. Um, it, it, there was a big focus on, you know, you are a storyteller. You don't need anything other than yourself in a room in order to be able to tell a story. 
So the digital kind of revolution enforced by the pandemic allowed us to, to alter our thinking, to stop thinking that we, need, we even needed a room. We didn't. We needed a Zoom or, you know, something else that rhymes. Um, and having that digital platform, that digital, digital studio to mess around in and to kind of explore creative ideas that were delivered purely vocally and, and delving back into the training around radio performance and it, uh, intonation, um, that kind of opened up new doors for us and it allowed us to break down walls of creativity that we previously had around how do we convey this idea if we're going to do it live or if we've got this idea and we're filming it how do we show the the scale of what we do we don't need to do any of that we don't need to worry about it because we can you know we've we've rediscovered the art of the radio play for us i think that's really interesting particularly um you mentioned that you you were able to overcome barriers that previously existed but in many ways, you were able to, and I'm just guessing here, but you were able to overcome barriers that um, were fairly unique to your to you as an individual. Um, one of the difficulties that a lot of people who are working in the creative industry, storytellers, dancers, actors, is that when they grow up and they start having families, and they start having mortgages and things, and they have full-time jobs, their creative output or the opportunity for them to continue their creative output is very limited. And it goes down, and it's, it's hard to fit your creativity around having a life and having a family and, and, and being a grown-up. Um, not to say that actors and dancers and creatives and storytellers are not grown-up, but we're, we're playful people. We like to play. We like to be free. We like to be, uh, be able to have the freedom to explore our own creativity and I suppose and maybe I'm guessing here that the benefits of the new technology having a zoom rather than a room I like that phrase I might use it in the introduction <laughs> it allowed you to kind of use the technology to to create shortcuts yes to unpick that a little bit I think the the whole notion of oh you're creative are you what restaurant do you work in that terrible tired horrible gag it's one that that frankly kind of reveals a really really ungrateful mindset in the populace that at the same time consumes creative content by the gigawatt um particularly during the lockdown and i i don't think people are aware that that's what they're doing i think everyone actually loves the idea of meeting an actor but there's always that notion of oh well, you're just mucking around aren't you you're just having mm. a play well yeah absolutely we're taught to play it's it's just a shame that society makes people forget that and as someone who did get a quote-unquote proper job, uh, I turned my back on acting for a very long time. I didn't do anything. Um, and I'll be brutally honest, it was a really dark time for me with my mental health. I struggled with it because as a, as a creative, you're almost driven pathologically to be creative, to express, to play, as you say. And I didn't let myself do that. Now, that was a personal choice. I could have done any number of things and I didn't choose to do them because I felt like I had to do the proper job thing. And then eventually I, I started coming back to the notion that actually, no, it's okay. I can give myself permission to act. And clutching at silver linings in an otherwise atrocious situation that is the pandemic, one of the things that happened is in a weird way, it brought myself and my, my closest friends and creative friends together. And it's enabled us to start performing again. And all of us have found it incredibly liberating because all of us, you know, some of us are, are working tangentially related to the arts or in fields not particularly close to what we originally did but they're in the arts so it's it's okay but being able to meet in 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 the zoom space as it were or in the digital field that let us start exploring our creativity again in a really safe way there was there was no 
issues with well you know we've got to hire a venue or we've got to hire the film equipment and then what do we do with it where does it go da, da, da. no we could just we could we could play it was verbal play but we could play we could start looking at creativity again we could start to build those worlds and and you know to to twist a, an analogy we could put a fourth wall in place around this mad little universe that we created for the for the purpose of these characters existing and then the technology to disperse it as well it's, it's just become so ubiquitous at work i've i've frequently uh, blown the minds of some of our younger staff when i've reminded them that i'm older than both google and facebook i remember the before times of being a child when you know if you wanted to meet your mates at the park you had to arrange a time two days in advance and if you were there late sorry they'd gone off to build dens without you so you could go and look at one of the five locations but you're probably better off just mucking around on the swings and going home. I remember that. That you know, I remember when digital, mobile phones um, they had an aerial, and if you sat down too quick, they maimed you. I remember the times before the internet becoming ubiquitous and instantly accessible. When you know, if you tried to get on the internet, the computer would scream at you. Mm. It would scream at you until either it gave up or you gave up, and then you'd get on the internet, and then you'd have to wait to find whatever it was you were looking for, and and most of the time it was probably quicker to just look at Encarta or the Encyclopedia Britannica. So I remember those things and the shocking pace of technological development. You know, I mean, I, I carry the, the black rectangle of doom in my pocket, as does everyone else. I've got instant access to everything I could ever want to know or see or potentially even book to do, which means that all of a sudden we've got access to everyone in the world. If only we can wave the flag high enough to let them see our mad little creative project. And it started to happen. And it is very much a numbers game. And this is where taking the, the skill sets I learned in, you know, what I think of as my dark ages, uh, working away from the arts and applying them to the business of being an artist has been invaluable. Um, the organisation required is something that I, I, I struggled with when I was working full time as an artist. Um, the foresight and the planning and the, the structure, that, those are all things that I learned out in the, in, in the corporate wilds. Um, and I know my, my creative colleagues did as well. We've all in these jobs, we've all been on strange little journeys of learning. Um, so going back to the, the notion of, you know, adversity, um, villains, you know, in this instance, the villain is circumstance. It's not an individual, um, unless you want to don a tinfoil hat and have several bottles of wine, but, um, realistically it's, it's circumstances forced us to innovate and it's circumstances that have forced us into being reactionary heroes in our own little tales where we've gone off, we've learned, we've taken those experiences and we're now applying them to doing something that makes our personal worlds better. So by being storytellers again, by re-engaging with our creativity, by, by telling stories to each other in the Zoom space, we've started to kind of reclaim who we were. Um, which is a long-winded way of saying, I think the new technology and its availability is brilliant. Um, and learning to use it has been a long process, but we're now in a position to do something incredible with it. And I feel, we feel like we are. You are a, a practicing creative practitioner. You are an actor, storyteller, director, as well as a producer. And recently you've been moving into digital production when it comes to telling your stories. For the people at home, tell us a little bit about you. Grant. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm an actor uh, by training. Um, my training had a heavy focus on classical theatre and storytelling in the arts. So underpinning all of the creative works that I've engaged in is this notion that as an actor, you are a storyteller. Now the story you're telling might be the story of your character, 
or you might be the omniscient narrator. It doesn't really matter. You're conveying the knowledge of a story to someone through a different means than the word on a page. In terms of the the kind of digital journey that I've been on, so the pandemic's kind of um, put myself and my, my creative chums in a position where all of a sudden we now have access to the technology, the programs, the systems, the, the, the literal physical hardware to record our stories and broadcast them to anyone daft enough to want to listen to us. And it's really, really exciting. Um, for the first time ever, we, we can record at home. I can tell the stories at home. Um, a big sideline for me recently has been uh, narrating um, spoken word pieces or short stories. It's incredibly cathartic. You learn so much by reading someone else's story and narrating it. You, you find the love that they have for whatever the subject matter is and what the quirks are around it. And you can, you can breathe life into that as, a, as an actor by, by, frankly, one of the oldest artistic traditions, which is the, the, the spoken word, the story told. You can be a storyteller around a digital campfire. People will, will sit and listen to your voice and hopefully they'll take something away from it at the end of it that's more than just the words that you've spoken or the, the tone of voice. So it's really, really exciting for me to be able to kind of invade people's homes with this project. That I'd love to tell you more about what it is and I'm going to kind of skirt the edges of it, but it's top secret because we, frankly, it's a really good idea and we don't want anyone to nick it. Um, so essentially it's a, it's, it's a completely improvised hauntological experience that, that kind of references the world that we know and takes a, a slightly satirical look at it. Um, but the thing is, it's completely improvised and it can be completely improvised as a story that we tell because we've now got the digital capacity to put it together um, completely remotely. We don't need a studio. We don't need a sound technician. We can do it all ourselves and we can broadcast it to people ourselves. We can reach them through any number of different platforms. We're on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, any that you like. Um, and it's enabled us to, to, to tell stories in a new way. So, or rather to rediscover an old way of telling stories. For us, we're, we're almost rediscovering the radio play for the new age. So we're telling stories it, and people can listen to them, um, which is just a radio play, but we're not doing it across the radio. We're doing it across the internet. And what that means is people can find it anytime they want and they can re-engage it just like you would with a book. I love, I love that phrase, uh, gathering around the digital campfire. And I think the one the silver lining possibly of the COVID crisis is that it's encouraged people to do precisely that, to gather around the digital campfire. Post-COVID, what are the next steps as a professional practitioner, storyteller, actor, director, producer, digital pioneer now when it comes to storytelling? What are the next steps? Uh, do you think that virtual storytelling will ever take the place of live theatre or live performance? Can it be complementary? What, what are the next steps? So this is... so. Drawing on personal opinion, professional experience, what I've seen in my day job, uh, working around the edges of the arts, what I've seen firsthand. I don't think digital storytelling will ever overtake live storytelling. There's a magic in being in a room with someone uh, as they tell you a story face-to-face -face or on a stage, and it's completely unbeatable. It speaks to the very deepest parts of us. You know, I mean, I referenced earlier the, the, digit, the notion of the digital campfire. Um, that's where storytelling comes from. It comes from being set around the fire, wondering what the hell the stars are. Why does the moon come up at random times? Why is it full sometimes? And we tell stories to each other to explain the world. So I don't think, I don't think live performance is ever going to go away. I think it'll change. And I think it's right that it should change to embrace the best of 
what the new world has to offer or the new technology has to offer. So for, for myself and my, my chums, uh, our collective, I think initially the, there won't be that much of a change. I think for us, the, the ability to create without having to pay too much heat to geographical boundaries or economic boundaries of having to hire a studio space or da 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 there's too many benefits for us to, to want to, to, to abandon that. And our audience, I think, or rather we're hoping will shift into the kind of podcast commute audience because it's certainly, you know, for the day job, I've got a two hour commute. So I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So we're hoping to be able to continue to capitalize on that. Now, I think what we're more likely to see is more of a blended existence where live performance starts to lean more on digital to draw an audience in. So, you know, in a professional sense, in my day job, I do advocate that people leverage their, their, their social media followings to provide an audience for live performance, to hype live performance as the pinnacle. And I don't think that's ever going to change. I think that there's always going to be a special feeling to going to see a live performance. I think there always should be a special feeling to it um, because it's, it, it, you know, in, in the same way that I can remember life before Google, um, a live performance is ephemeral. It's there for the time you're there, and then it's gone. It exists only in the heads of the people who saw it, and that's that's been true ever since you know the first storyteller pointed at the sky and said, "I know why the sun comes up and goes down. Sit down, and I'll tell you." That story only existed for the people who heard it. Now there are other tellings of it, but they were heavily influenced by the context around people listen to it. Um, and I think, it, much in the same way as you know, there are books that I've read in my life that if I pick up now will instantly transport me, not necessarily to the world within the book or the story, but to the mood I was in when I first read it. And I think there's, there's a huge, huge benefit to having a digital form of, of that kind of storytelling for us, for our creativity, for, our, for, for the stories we're telling. I would hope that people will start to feel like that with the recordings when they find them when they rediscover them when they listen to them again after a couple of years and go oh yeah i remember this this was fantastic yeah it is fantastic you do need to listen um shameless plug time um but i think there's a hybridized model is is the only sensible way forward i think economically it's cheap if it's cheap people are going to do it the arts is irrepressible and it finds the easiest you know to coin a phrase, life finds a way, well, the arts find a way as well. And if, it, if it's the path of least resistance to do digital work because you can produce it at home on your own, you can, you can learn, you, can, you're, you know, the quality of what you do can grow as you're producing it, people are going to do it. And then I think that will ultimately culminate in live performance as the goal that people want to get to. They want to meet their fans. Their fans are going to want to see it live. They're going to want to interact with it. There's loads of the League of Gentlemen, perfect example. Um, now I'm a graduate of the same Hall of Madness that the League of Gentlemen came from. They they started out with radio plays. They they were telling stories over the airwaves, just a voice and a sound effects reel, and the individual listening to them. So it becomes quite a personal storytelling experience. But then they progress to the television. So same kind of thing. But then you've got the visual medium thrown in. But at the height of their career, at the peak, what were they doing as a collective? They were doing live stage shows that were sold out because people wanted the experience, that personal touch of being able to see it, to smell it, to feel it. And it's that the, the visceral reality of, of feeling a performance going on as you watch the story unfolding, as you make that personal connection to seeing it, as you recognize yourself in the characters you're seeing, hearing, in some performances, smelling. That, I think, is always going to be there. 
because it's a it, it's it's a drive to connect that people have. Absolutely, and it's all about being able to take advantage and exploring this new medium. And we're all new. This is this has only just really come about recently. Um, podcast is ten years old, maybe a little bit longer. And it's all about being able to explore and being brave enough to explore that medium. Fred, thank you so much for being on the show. We've run out of time. Thank you. Not a problem. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me on and hearing my waffle. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this episode of 101 George Street. The podcast is now available across all the major platforms. So if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a comment. Until next time, stay safe and stay creative. Stay creative.